Here at Shaun of the South, we're keeping our hands sharp with the help of Case Knives, the sponsor of this episode. A tradition of my family for generations, my granddaddy used to say the best cure for idle hands was to build something. But in today's day and age, everything's done with a click, a swipe, or a tap. But how about we put away the screens and put your hands to work with a Case Knife? You are listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host tonight, Sean Dietrich. And man, we've got a great show lined up ahead of you here tonight. A great show coming to you live in the podcast airwaves and the radio waves all over this fine nation. This woman you see behind me here fixing to play music for you tonight is Karis Waltman, everybody. Karis Waltman. <laughs>
Well, this portion of our program is brought to you by visitnorthalabama.org, the Mountain Lakes Tourist Association. Visit the 16 North Alabama counties and make this state what it is. Let's talk about fishing for a second. The Alabama Bass Fishing Trail features 13 of Alabama's premier bass fishing lakes that stretch from the mountains of North Alabama heading south to the Mobile Delta. Now, you might lie awake at night sometimes and wonder if you're a fisherman or not. Well, here's a litmus test for you developed by the scientists at the University of Alabama. It's very, very easy. Very easy. You can do it in the privacy of your own home. All you got to do is look in your refrigerator and if you see tartar sauce or cans of beer, congratulations. You're a fisherman. If you're not, don't worry, because you're about to be one. Alabama is a year-round destination for anglers from across the country who tell their wives they're going fishing, and then they haul very big, heavy coolers into their boats, but often forget their fishing rods at home. North Alabama is home to hundreds of regional and national tournaments across this 52,400 square mile state. So visit NorthAlabama.org to find out more about it or hashtag VisitNorthAL. <laughs> now let's have another tune here from Karis Waltman, everybody. Karis Waltman.
This evening, sending to us from listeners all over this fine nation who had nothing better to do than to put a little pen to paper and give us some of their sentiments and tell us what they think about our show and to incite legal representation forbidding us to broadcast certain things over the air because we have overstepped the boundaries of law. Our first letter comes from Branch Hit, Austin, Texas. Sean, my birthday's today, and I'm about to go in for an appendectomy. And that's pretty, that's a pretty crummy birthday, if you ask me. So wish me a happy birthday. And wish me good luck while I go under the knife. Your buddy, Branch. Well, dear Branch, from everybody here tonight, when I was a kid, I had my Thompsons taken out, and everybody promised me that I'd be getting free ice cream. They said I could eat all the free ice cream I could stand when it was all said and done. As it turned out, I didn't give a rip about free ice cream once you've had your throat ripped open. So I hope people are making a whole lot more valuable promises to you than they did to me long ago. From everybody here tonight, happy birthday, Branch Hinton. Everybody, happy birthday. <laughs> Terry, from Vancouver, Canada. Miss Terry writes, hi, Sean. You're welcome to come up here to Canada anytime. I just wanted you to know that you have a few people who listen to you up here. They like your show. They get a kick out of the way you pronounce words. But we can still understand you. Don't worry. You talk very well. I'm not saying that you don't. You just talk a lot differently than the people up here in Canada. The biggest word difference I notice from people down your direction is the word sorry. Up here, we say it sorry. And down there, you say sorry. But you say it all together differently. I don't hear the why on the end of your word. It's a strange thing among many other language quirks we share between the northern part of this continent and the lower part of the US. Thanks for the shows, your friend, Terry. Dear Terry, I'm sorry that you have such terrible taste in entertainment. And I'm sorry about the way you pronounce the word sorry. I appreciate the kind words. Appreciate it very much. Driscoll Martin, Dothan, Alabama. I am flying to see my mother and sister, as you read this probably. She's been living in Spain with my sister for the past year. My sister moved to Spain with her husband. It was a huge move. It shocked the family, but my mother has been there with her. I have never been on a plane before, and I am scared to death. Planes are not my preferred method of travel. I've always been afraid of them, always. 
There's no way to get overseas unless you pay an arm and a leg to take a boat. And by the time you get over there, the people who you're going to see are going to be old and gray because a boat ride across the ocean takes forever. So I hope I survive this plane ride. I'm taking your shows with me on my phone. I downloaded all of them. And I'll be listening to them on the long ride across the pond. Signed, Driscoll. Well, dear Driscoll, dear Driscoll, good luck to you. Remember, plane travel is 99% safer than car travel. You're going to be just fine, just fine, as long as you make sure you're not part of that 1% who dies an early death in a mid-air explosion. I don't care for ever traveling myself, Driscoll. So you have my thoughts and my prayers with you along with everybody else here tonight. We're thinking of you. Samantha Honer, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was looking around my house the other day for a pair of my eyeglasses. You probably already know where this story's going. They were on top of my head. Now, I really discovered right then and there that I must truly be getting old. I've been resisting it for a long time. Truth is, I did not remember even using those reading glasses. Can you say something on your podcast about getting old and how badly it stinks? Well, dear Samantha, dear Samantha, to quote a, a wise person, you can't help getting older, but you ain't got to get old. So here's to staying young even in your older skin. And here's to all of us in this audience here tonight, getting plenty of dietary fiber. <laughs> Lee Ladar, Slidell, Louisiana. My son and I gotten into podcasts recently. We've done it together. We found yours. When we heard letters from your listeners on the air, I knew this was something I had to write you about. So here it is. My son, Bradley, has just won an award and I'm so proud that I have to get his name shouted out. And yours is the only place I know to do that, since they probably aren't interested in doing this sort of thing on the six o'clock news. Bradley was awarded an honor from his teacher for most outstanding math achievement this year, the highest grade in his class. It sounds silly, I know, but he was failing at math at the very beginning of the year because he don't do numbers very well, just like me. So we got him a tutor, and he's been working so hard, it isn't even funny. His grades have steadily improved, and he's, he's one of the only ones in his class with A's. And he has the highest percentage of an A in his class for math. And I'm not just proud of his grade. I'm proud of the dedication he's shown because it means everything to see him try. Bradley Ladari is his name. It would mean so much to me if you read this on your podcast because he will hear it. Thank you so much. Well, dear Bradley, if somebody speaking, somebody speaking who has never truly understood math, who believes that math was created by the devil on the eighth day, who believes that there is nothing worse in this world than having to solve for X, go get it, boy. Go get it. From your buddy Sean. Carlita Larry, Virginia Beach, Virginia. I took my dad fishing. And he's a huge fisherman a long time ago. But he lives in the nursing home now and I can't get out to do it very much with him 
he can't get out to do it at all. So usually one of us has to take him, but we've been falling behind. I rented a boat at the marina and I had to drive the boat because he can't do that anymore. I'm not very good at driving a boat, and so he was holding on for dear life. He was there with his life vest on, sitting right there in the seat. I helped him bait his hook the same way he once did for me when I was a girl. And he caught two bass. He reeled them into the boat himself, and I was proud of my daddy. It was such a small thing, I know that. But it wasn't small to me, and I don't think it was small to him. To me, it was like watching my whole life happen in that little boat with an old man beside me who was watching his whole life happen. I love him so much. He taught us the simple fun of fishing with worms out of an old coffee can on a hook. Ever since we were kids, that's what we did. And I just had a hard time watching him get older through the years. And I have an even harder time watching him be in that nursing home. No matter how right I know it is, I just don't feel right. But it was nice seeing him feel like a young man again. I know he was feeling that way because he actually said as much to me when we were done fishing. Thanks for listening to me, Carlita. Thanks for the letter, Carlita. Aaron Bell, Asheville, North Carolina. Sean, I have a favor to ask. I have a favor. There's a guy in my English class who I really like, and I want him to notice me. I'm 31 years old, and I just got back to college, and I don't know how to make this happen because I don't know how to do anything, it seems like. That's how you feel when you go back to college as an adult. I don't know how to get this man to notice me because I'm a plain-looking girl with not much going on in the way of being hot or nothing but I don't get the feeling that he's the kind of guy who's goes for that kind of girl anyway. So how do I get him to see me? I just want to meet him, I just want to be his friend. He seems like he's such a nice and sweet man and once he even brought his daughter to class and he held her through the whole period. She's four years old and he's divorced and he seemed like such a good dad to her and she seemed like such a good kid and that just spoke volumes to me about what kind of person he is. I don't know how to put it all on the line, Sean. I don't know how to risk it all because I don't want to get hurt again. I've been hurt before just like anybody else. But I need to talk to him and I need to try or else I'll never forgive myself. But every time I'm around him, I clam up and I get nervous. I don't know what to say or what to do, so I'm asking for your help. What do I do? How do I talk to him? Please help me seriously. I mean it, your listener, Aaron. Well, dear Aaron, dear Aaron, I am not an expert on this matter by any means. You can ask my wife about this. My knowledge of inter intergender relations stretches to about the end of my foot. But there are two things I know about me. I do know a few things about my, my gender. One, we like food. Two, we love to like food. If you were to do one thing draw attention to yourself in a way that this man will not ever forget, 
It is by baking him something. Now, this is only my opinion, and I ain't by any means meant to rep represent official legal counsel or the opinions of the producers of this show. <laughs> but a man notices a good casserole, a pound cake, or a batch of warm cookies. I mean that, I really do. Now, the second thing that I would tell you is this. With your special delivery of baked goods or cooked produce of any kind to this man, I would suggest you attach a short note that tells him how you feel about him and how you want to get to know him better. You see, men don't often get the honesty and sincerity of anonymous females. Be honest with him. Be sincere and above all, be yourself. You were wrong about one thing. I don't know you, but you ain't a plain looking girl like you think you are. You're strong, you're vivacious, you have a heart and a soul and you deserve to be loved and you deserve to have somebody to love you. So don't forget what I said about the food. And also, Aaron, I'm serious about this. Please let us know how it turns out. We're all wishing you the best of luck. Everybody here wishes Aaron the best of luck and that's letters from our listeners. Letters from our listeners. Thank you. 
it's been hot and humid and humid and hot and hot and humid here in West Florida. I mean, it's been so humid that when you step outside, your clothes start to get saturated and it feels like you got a pancake stuck in your pants. I can't stand the humidity and yet at the same time, I love it. There's some things in life that you just can't stand, but at the same time, without them, you feel lost. You've got to have that one thing out there that annoys you. This is why people stay married. <laughs> this is why people endure all sorts of hardship in the name of careers. And this is why during the 60th anniversary, you can see, you can see people who are upright, strong Methodist people get on a dance floor and dance to the song, Steal the One, because a little bit of torture helps your life stay in balance, helps you enjoy your life, gives you a little bit of, little bit of perspective. At least that's, that's my perspective on life. You see, I was standing on a stage Playing that exact song, still the one, still the one that makes me strong, still the one that helps I want to take along. We're still having fun because you're still the one. I was playing this song because my wife, Jamie, was sitting in the front row. We were outside on this big grassy lawn and there were crickets going, although you couldn't hear them because our music we play at a, at a volume is loud enough to affect the daggum weather. And we were playing this music on this stage, this grassy lawn in front of us, and there were these kids. Kids were dancing to this song, because we, after we played that song, Steal the One, we played a song called uh, Dance With Me, and then we played a song called You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, I Wanna Dance the Night Away. And there was a little girl standing in front, five-year-old little girl, and she was dancing a dance called The Floss. It goes like this. You wouldn't believe how long it took me just to learn the basic moves. And she was trying to teach it to me. And I have never felt so Southern Baptist as I do when I dance the floss. <laughs> but we are who we are. We're made to be who we were made to be. I was up there on that stage playing with my friends in the West Floridian humidity. My hair, which is kind of reddish and curly, Starts to look a little bit like Bozo the Clown had a love child with Eleanor Roosevelt. It was big and it was, it was fro-like and I was playing this song and then we played a song after that called Say It's Only a Paper Moon. Say it's only a paper moon hanging over a cardboard sea. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed me. I was singing that song also, not just for my wife, but for the people on the stage with me, my friends. My friends, I was singing for everybody, really. I was even singing it for that five-year-old little girl who was dancing the floss. But I sang this song for them because I love the lyrics. Say it's only a paper moon hanging over a cardboard sea, but it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. I've had a lot of people who believed in me, namely that, long, that young woman sitting on the front row, my wife, who I was playing it for. See, I've always played music. I've played music just for about most of my life. I cannot remember a time in my life when I did not play music. Now, most of my adulthood years, I've worked a lot of different jobs. 
Before I took up writing, before I took up this, this tragic mess of me standing on the stage talking to you and not having an idea of what I'm going to say, but saying it anyway, before I started that, I worked all sorts of other little jobs, little, little no-namer jobs. I worked construction. I worked food service. I worked in la uh, landscaping. I worked as a, installing metal roofing. I once worked scooping ice cream. And once, though I'm not extremely proud of this, I don't even like to admit it, I worked digging a ditch. Uh, I, because I have a literary mindset, because I am sort of a writer in, inside my head, I developed a title for that position. I called myself the Lead Culvert Installation Supervisor. Just give a little bit of zip, you know. I've worked some doozies in my day, just like anybody else. Blue collar work, thankless work, just work that you, you, you show up for work, you put in your time, you sweat until you smell like something that's been passed through the system of a dying billy goat. And then you go home. Only I didn't go home because ever since I can remember from the age of about 18 years old, I would clock out of work, wherever that was, and I would go and play music with my friends at some sort of establishment across the county line, across the state line. I've played all over. Anybody who owns a guitar in this part of the world or a piano or, or an accordion, God forbid, is invited to play because we don't have many musicians in this part of the world because we are so small. I think between here and Pensacola, Florida, you maybe have enough good musicians to form one good trio. And that's, that's not during cold flu season, in which case you might be lucky to form a duo. It's just the way it is. We don't have a whole lot of people to draw from and the people that we do have to draw from like like a man I used to play with a long time ago, uh, they're a lot older. He was 75 years old, played steel guitar. Boy, that man was good. But once he got to retirement age, he said he wanted to sit home and draw his Social Security check. He didn't care if he never stepped foot outside his house again. And when the local grocery store started, started home deliveries, it truly was the last time he ever stepped foot outside his house again. <laughs> I would always clock out of, out of my work, and I would go across some county line, state line, or, or in the edge of town to a beard joint. And I would play music inside a joint with neon signs on the windows, a place that had a little dance floor where people could get out there and dance and, and they would slow move or they would waltz or they would hold their belt buckle and they would just do a little two-step. And I usually played either guitar or piano. A lot of people ask me, how long have you been playing piano? How'd you start? And well, the way I really started playing piano was, see, my grandfather was an accordionist, and that was my first instrument, which is kind of, you know, based on the piano. You got the right keyboard that hangs on the right side of your, your chest. And my grandfather said to me a long, long time ago, he said, if you want to find a way to pick up chicks, take up the accordion. <laughs> How wrong he was. How wrong he was. The accordion is not really an instrument at all. The accordion is more like, more like a family embarrassment. <laughs> Nobody wants the accordion in their life. They just kind of want to pretend it doesn't exist. I learned how to play the accordion. I played Cajun music. I played, played waltzes, la valse de la belle. And, uh, and we played all sorts of tunes that you could kick your heel to. And then I decided to myself 
that, that I wanted to learn how to play the piano. But in order to play the piano, you got to have a piano, and I didn't have one. On my ninth birthday, my mother and my father held this little party, this little family party. And they had a cake decorated for me. My mother had decorated a cake in brown, dark brown frosting, and she'd drawn on the white icing of the cake piano keys. She'd, she'd illustrated these piano keys. My mother was always an artist. And my mother knew how much that I loved Ray Charles. Oh, mama, don't you treat me wrong. Dance with your daddy all night long, all right now. Hey, how much I liked Ronnie Millsap. And how much I liked Elvis Presley with that song he sang that was real slow. Wise men say, all the fools rushing, but I can tell falling in love with you like a river flows surely to the sea, darling. So it goes, our love was meant to be. I love the song with Pena. I love that chick who used to play on Lawrence Welk show. The, the blonde girl, Joanne Castle, she played ragtime piano. That woman's hands can move faster than the speed of light. And then watch her. My mother would turn it up, and I'd look at that, that woman stand up a little bit, and she'd bounce. She'd bounce. My mother say, you better be watching her hands. Joanne Castle. My mother decorated that cake with piano keys. Well, she, I blew out the candles. She sliced the cake. And before we ate any cake, my father said, hey, hey, let's go downstairs, down to the basement. Well, that was a weird request. Go down and do what? I said. He said, let's go downstairs to the basement. I want to show you something. Well, I hated our basement. Our basement wasn't nothing but this place that smelled funny and there was a lot of skink poop behind the water heater. I hated that place. It was dank and, and musty and it smelled like mold. And my father led us to the basement. He clicked on that light. The light illuminated them steps. We, we walked down the steps ever so slowly and I looked and there in the corner was an upright piano. I could hardly believe it. I almost wanted to cry. I threw my arms around my father and I said, you bought a piano? Is it mine? He said, it's yours. It's yours. And I ran to it and I put my hands on it and let my fingers feel the ivory and the keys made of ebony. And I played, but I didn't know how to play. So I just tapped out, ding, 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 ding. My father refused to buy me lessons for that piano. It was his reasoning that if I truly wanted to play the piano, if I truly wanted to play the piano, I would teach myself. He believed this sort of thing. He believed that, that it's people who wanted to learn how to do things in life could just somehow want them bad enough that they would get them. I don't know how much I believe that. There have been things in my life I really, truly wanted, for instance, Last year, the Powerball got up to $179 million. I wanted that. Well, it didn't happen. There was a girl in my sixth grade class. Her name was Ella. I wanted her, 
But Ella, when I would approach her, would say, beat it, butt breath. And I was doomed to the circle of just friendship with most good-looking girls who I, I had a fancy for. So, so I don't know how true that statement was, but in the realm of piano, my father was absolutely correct. I developed my own exercises for myself, and I practiced them. I started playing that piano with my, with my, uh, with my skink, you know, pet skink, running around the basement pooping behind the water heater. And I would play this music that I sort of invented myself. And I practiced, and I got to be okay. I got to be a little bit better. And pretty soon, I was playing piano in church as an accompanist. And I played at choir rehearsal every now and then. And my father was so, so proud of me. I don't guess I've ever seen him so proud of me. He'd listen to me practice, and he just, he derived pleasure from watching me play. And he'd look at me and he'd say, now, that is going to get you a whole lot more girls than the accordion. <laughs> I loved that feeling of my father being proud of me. I loved it more than anything in the whole world. And when he died, I was 12 years old, I had nothing to do but play the, the piano. So I would practice downstairs in the basement, sometimes five or six hours, and I wish I could tell you I was doing it for therapy reasons, because I was 12 years old and I missed my daddy, but I was doing it simply because it was the one thing that he was proud of me about, and you would do things to earn the approval of people even long after they die, and I played this piano, even though no one was there to listen. I dropped out of school when I was 12 years old, I talked about it a lot. It's not what I want to talk about here tonight, but I did drop out of school. But I always played, I always played the piano. It was a gift my father gave me. I got to be a lot better uh, as I grew up. As I grew up, I started playing with bands when I was in my teenage years. I played with bands and we'd, we'd show up at these joints with the neon signs on the windows and we'd set up and we'd play songs for the crowd of people. And these people, they look at a musician and he's free and they believe in musicians. Musicians have some sort of, some sort of supernatural talent and when they play, people can't help but move their, their hips and shake themselves across the dance floor. And it makes you feel good. And when I was up on that stage, I didn't feel like a dropout. I didn't feel like a fatherless kid. I feel like someone who knew what he was doing because my fingers could play that piano. And I just never seemed to find a good reason to quit playing in bands. So I played in bands all my life until I was in my 30s. And don't ask me why, but I decided at one point that I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to be a music teacher. I wanted to go to college to learn how to teach music. Well, later on in my life, I got my GED. And by the time I was 30 years old, my wife and I drove after I'd enrolled. We drove all the way to a, to a town, which I won't tell you. I won't tell you because, well, because I don't want to bring any undue shame upon this university, but... I enrolled in a university. I enrolled in this university, and they rejected me. They rejected me. Like I said, I don't want to bring any undue shame upon this university because it's a highly respected institution, but it is located on 600 West Avenue, College Avenue in Tallahassee, Florida, and is named Florida State University. 
And I showed up to this room full of about 15 professors, music professors, doctorates of music, doctorates of music, sitting in rows with these wire-rimmed glasses on. Everybody in that room smelled like ultra-strength Ben Gay. <laughs> I was playing my songs that I'd rehearsed for them, playing my songs. And they all looked at me, and they nodded their heads. I, I could tell that I was doing okay. I was doing okay. And then a man came up, who was a head piano professor, he came up, he had a big old piece of music, it was from Franz Liszt. And he put it in front of me, it was an intricate piece. And I hung my head because I knew that this man had found me out. I do not read music, and I admitted this. I said, I don't read music, sir. He said, not a lick. I said, I can't read a lick. I said, but I'm a very hard worker, and if you give me a chance, I swear I will work hard for you. I heard a gasp from one of them doctors of music behind me. <gasps> she gasped. And one of them stood up and passed clean out and had to be resuscitated with defibrillator paddles. <laughs> a 30-year-old man standing in front of them with his GED education playing music by ear for doctors of music. Lord have mercy, what's next? Poop in the punch bowl. <laughs> well, I don't even have to tell you how it went. I stood up, I shuffled out of that place. I walked downstairs, got out the elevator, and walked downstairs to see my wife. She was standing by my truck. She was waiting with bated breath. She said, well, how'd it go? I said, it didn't go so well. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're looking at a man who's got a promising uh, future in digging ditches. Oh, I'm sorry. I said, it's all right. Did it go really that bad? I said, it went terrible. She said, well, those idiots, what do they know? <laughs> she said, I still love you. I said, really? She said, does a bear play piano in the woods? <laughs> of course I do. I said, oh, honey, I'm a failure. She said, no, only at loading the dishwasher. <laughs> and we drove home in silence, and I put that dream to rest. I got a general education degree in college. And I guess I've learned a lot since then. I've learned a lot since then. Namely, I've learned that them professors did me a big old favor. Even though it seemed like the worst thing for me, that professor saved my life, actually. Because without them, I would have never started writing. Without them, I would have never had that trajectory for, for my existence. I would have never met you because I probably would have never started speaking because, because I would have been stuck in some dingy college room with people who smell like ultra-strength Bengay and Icy Hot and Tiger Rub Balm. And I would have been trying to teach piano to somebody who didn't want to learn piano and, and realizing that I didn't belong there. Sometimes the worst thing in your life isn't even the worst thing, it's the best thing in disguise. That's one of the things I learned. And I love speaking to you and writing to you. And I'm glad I didn't miss out on this because in some ways, the people I write to in my column and the people that I am talking to tonight, you and you and you, not this woman right here, she hadn't laughed all night. <laughs> but the rest of you, 
You saved my life, you see. You saved my life. Just like music saved my life a long time ago. Just like piano saved my life. Just like my wife saved my life. Music in general has that kind of effect on people. Music like this. Should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely? I long for heaven and home. is my portion a constant friend is he his eyes on the spiral and I know what is over I sing because I'm happy And I sing because I'm free For his eye, his eye is on the sparrow And I know he watches over me Watches over me. Hey, thank you very much for having me this evening. It's been a wonderful pleasure. Wonderful pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host today, Sean Dietrich. It's been a bona fide pleasure coming to you live each week via the podcast airwaves and the radio waves. This episode was brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy who once said the best way to cure idle hands was to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife. And by Folklore Brewing Company, quite literally the best brew in Alabama. Visit Folklore Brewing and Meadery today. Now, music you're about me today was the music of Karis Waltman. Karis loved music, began as a child when she picked up a guitar at the young age of eight and taught herself everything she knows. Her mama said she was playing music and singing notes before she could even talk. Karis was born and raised in the Florida Panhandle as the daughter of a preacher. Music was not a huge part of her life until she was around age 11. It was then that she started collecting vinyl records and her love for the old ways and the old music just took off and got bigger over time. It is her dream to keep the old music alive and prominent in the younger generation. You ought to go visit karaswaltman.com. That's X-A-R-S Waltman. 
Bluebird.com. And there you can download her new album. I know it will bless your heart. To find anything more about what I do, you can visit SeanOfTheSouthShow.com. And there you can find archived episodes dating back to the first episode all the way to this episode, which you just heard, though I'm not sure why. You must have a terrible taste in podcasts. I'm hungry there. I hope you take the time to drop me a line and tell me about your birthday announcements, wedding invitations, and potluck socials. And I'll do my best to read them over there for my friends, because I love to do that sort of stuff for my friends. And speaking of friends, friends... I used to be a mess, but then I did the hokey pokey and I turned myself around, and that's what it's all about. Adios. Adios.